0: Joshua chapter 5 is where we'll be this morning, so just want to read these three verses we'll be looking at today and then we'll get into it. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening On the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Well, many of you are gardeners, aren't you? Um, even farmers, you uh, sow seed, you, you plant seeds, you look for a harvest at a certain point, and it is a great blessing to eat the fruit of your own labors, isn't it? To have a harvest, to enjoy that food when it comes up. And uh, this is what we see happening here really, that the people of Israel are harvesting the fruit of that new land, and they're feasting together in the promised land, and so we want to look at this passage. I'm going to go through it first, kind of verse by verse, and discuss what's going on here, and then we'll seek to apply this passage also to ourselves. In this section, we have three verses, which are really three sections. And so first we see in verse 10 that the Passover is celebrated. It says, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. So the Lord had brought them now into Canaan, into the promised land. Forty years after they came out of Egypt, really almost to the day here, the day they crossed the Jordan corresponded with the 10th day of Nisan or Aviv, which was the day when they were to select the Passover lamb. Now, this day was the Passover day, the 14th day of Nisan. The next day would correspond with the day that they came out of Egypt We see here that faithfully God brought them out of Egypt and then landed them safely in Canaan, though their disobedience delayed God's blessing for 40 years and a whole generation missed out on the promised land. But we want to look for a moment here and just examine this feast day called Passover for a while that they celebrated here. This is a holiday still celebrated by the Jews Even to this day. But it has its origin in Exodus 12. And I would have you go there and examine all the details and look at all these verses, but we don't have the time to really go through it in depth. So I just want to summarize. In Exodus 11 and 12, it speaks of this tenth plague. God was sending ten plagues on Egypt in order to judge Egypt and allow his people to be saved and delivered out of that land, out of slavery. And the tenth plague was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And that last plague was the straw that broke the camel's back. Pharaoh to that point had been so hard-hearted he would not let the people go. But then when God sent this plague and the firstborn were killed, he sent them out hastily. But the evening before God passed judgment on Egypt, he commanded all the Israelites to do this, which would become a a ritual in years to come, the Passover. He commanded them to slay and roast and eat an unblemished lamb, a male lamb, a year old, and put its blood on the doorposts of their houses and on the lintel, that's You know, the top beam at the top of your door. And the house that had the blood, God would pass over and spare the firstborn of that house. But if any house did not have the blood spread over it, well, their firstborn child would die. This lamb was to be eaten with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And it had to be roasted on fire, not boiled, not eaten raw, and none of its bones were to be broken. There's many details here to the ceremony. All of it had to be eaten that night as well, or it was to be burned up with fire. And they had to eat it in haste with their belts fastened, sandals on their feet, staff in hand, ready to flee Egypt. And this day was to be kept throughout their generations from that point as a memorial day. And we see that night of Passover, God did indeed judge Egypt. And there was a great cry as the Egyptians lost their firstborn children. But the people of Israel were spared by the blood. Pharaoh, even in the night, summoned Moses and Aaron and told them to get out of the land. You know, go and bless me also, he says. So the Israelites fled that very night and plundered the Egyptians. There was the Passover, then on the night before, and then the Exodus the day after. So this was a a day that became really a Sabbath to the Lord, a holy day of holy convocation. Leviticus 23 reiterates all these holy days that Israel was to keep. The feast of the Passover, and then seven days after that, the feast of Unleavened bread, and these are kind of coupled together, sometimes just referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, sometimes just as Passover in scripture, and the first day of that day of unleavened bread was a a holy Sabbath, and the last day, the seventh day was also a Sabbath with no work to be done, but they were to eat unleavened bread throughout those days, beginning at the Passover. Now It is a bit hard for us to relate to these ancient feasts, because we don't have anything quite similar in our culture. Maybe the closest thing is the Calgary Stampede or something, (laughs) you know, extended time of celebration and feasting. But this was a holy celebration that lasted for several days. In Israel, there was the weekly Sabbath on Saturday, and then these three annual feasts, Feast of Unleavened Bread and then Weeks or Pentecost and then the Feast of Booths. In addition, there were New Moon Days and, of course, the Day of Atonement once a year. These were all holy convocations and all males were to head to Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts. These ceremonial laws were very important in the law of God. God wanted his people to observe these things. However, we see that the people did not always observe them. We do see in Numbers chapter 9, the people celebrated Passover the year after they came out of Egypt. But the next reference we have to Passover is here in Joshua 5. Forty years later, they they came into the wilderness, or into the promised land, rather. And the next reference after Joshua 5 is actually all the way in 2 Kings 23, there, King Josiah discovers the book of the law. He leads the people in this revival, this return to the word of God and observing the things in it. And he leads the people to observe the Passover. And it says there in Second Kings twenty three twenty two that this had not been done since the days of the judges. And so hundreds of years had passed. None of the kings of Israel had led in the Passover. The people were not scrupulous about observing this feast, really until after they came back to the land. And by the time of Jesus, this was a very important thing for the Jews. But here we have it in Joshua chapter 5. They observe it here as they have crossed the Jordan. They've come into the new land and they partake in the Passover. We don't have a lot of details about it, It says they kept it in Gilgal, that's where they were camped across the Jordan. It says it was in the evening, that's when they were supposed to partake of it, at twilight evening, the beginning of evening on that day. It says that they ate it on the plains of Jericho. See, they were just about to go into Jericho and, and conquer that particular city. And so just before they're conquering, they're... They're feasting. God had brought them into this land. They were commemorating the original Passover and Exodus. This would have been greatly significant to them because God was fulfilling his promise to bring them out of Egypt and into their own land. So with a fresh start, they got to retell of God's judgment on Egypt and their salvation from that land that made it possible for them to come to Canaan. And this would have encouraged them, of course, on their current mission as they looked ahead to Jericho. They knew God had judged their enemies in the past and he could deliver and save and help them into the future. And interesting that it notes they were right there on the plains of Jericho. It reminds me of Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. They were feasting on the doorstep of such a formidable enemy. They were celebrating. They knew God was mighty, saving, wonder-working, that he would lead them even to conquer the whole land. So we see that. They observe Passover in verse 10. Verse 11, we see that they enjoyed the fruit of the land. Now, at our holidays, we enjoy special kinds of food often. Turkey is special for Thanksgiving and for some of us Christmas as well. Well, the unleavened bread was very important for this Passover and and the, the feast the next seven days. We see them actually eating unleavened bread here in verse 11. The day after Passover on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, and parched grain, and so they were eating of the very fruit of the land of Canaan, the produce from that land, and they observed this feast. they ate unleavened bread and even parched grain or roasted grain or corn. The word there in Hebrew is simply roasted. Maybe it's something like we we call a roast beef, a roast. They had this uh, term. so they were feasting there in the promised land on the very fruit of that land. This is significant, right? Because this is the first taste of that promised land. The first fruits, the first harvest. Sort of like the Puritans when they came over into the new world and they labored hard for a while and they had that first harvest. This was a time of great Thanksgiving. That's what our holiday Thanksgiving is based on. You could imagine similar joy and celebration happening here as they had this first taste of the fulfillment of God's promise to them made so very long ago. And God had told them this land was an abundant and blessed land. That phrase recurs over and over. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 8, 7-10 describes the land further. He says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. This was a land of wonderful provision. God was now giving them a taste of that blessing they were receiving. We see in verse 12 that the manna ceases as well. Just as surely as the manna first appeared exactly when the people needed it, back in Exodus chapter 16, it ceased when they did not need it any longer. As they were traveling through the wilderness, this was not an established land. They were temporary dwellers. They were living in tents. They didn't have time to, you know, plant seed and get a harvest. And so God provided for them extraordinarily in the wilderness, giving them manna from heaven and even quail later and water from the rock. That was his extraordinary provision, miraculous from heaven, not the native produce of the land. But now as they cross into Canaan, they begin to eat of the produce of the land, and that extraordinary providence ceases. Still, this was something to be greatly thankful for. should be thankful when God provides things miraculously, Out of nowhere, seemingly, we should also be thankful for what he gives out of just the ordinary labor of our land. And so they ate the Passover and produce of the land and the manna ceased. And they feasted in the promised land. Now the question about all this is how to apply this to ourselves. What do we have to do with Israel again 3,000 years ago? Eating, land, eating fruit in the land of Canaan. It's an important thing to remember when reading the Old Testament, that saying of Augustine, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. We see as we look through the Bible and into the New Testament that these old things take on new meaning as they're interpreted through Jesus Christ and the New Covenant. And so I want to move into some application here right away to us as Christians. And so there'll be three main points here. Number one is we're to celebrate Christ, our Passover lamb. As Hebrews 8.5 points out, many things in the Old Testament were copies and shadows of heavenly things. Even this Passover It's a copy, it's an outline, it's a sketch or a shadow of things that were to come. Like a a sketch compared to a finished painting. There was an indication of something here back in Joshua 5 that would be more fully revealed in the time to come. The Passover feast and the Passover lamb was just a sketch, just an indication of a future Passover lamb. And this we know is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God and man, sacrificed for us on the cross, was our Passover lamb. When he came to earth and began his ministry, John the Baptist saw him coming. What did he say in John 1.29? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1.19 talks about the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus had all the attributes of this spotless lamb, even described in Exodus 12. In Revelation, John sees a vision of Jesus as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Revelation 5.6. Even back in the Old Testament, Isaiah Course had prophesied of this one, the servant of the Lord, crushed in our place, stricken for our sins to bring us peace. And he was led silent like a lamb to the slaughter. We all like sheep had gone astray, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity. Boat. In John 19, that after Jesus died on the cross, they were about to break his bones, but they didn't, and in so doing, they fulfilled Exodus 12, because the bones of that Passover lamb were not to be broken. John 1936. And we see many other verses in Scripture that relate to this truth that Jesus Christ is the glorious. Passover lamb. We know that God must pass through even this whole world in judgment. There is a day coming when Jesus will return and the whole world will be judged in righteousness. And after each one of us dies, we go before the Lord in judgment. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We have all sinned and hardened our hearts, even like Pharaoh, earning God's wrath against us. But by the grace of God, he provides a lamb for the sacrifice, a perfect lamb with no spot or blemish. Jesus Christ was perfectly sinless, lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. Hebrews 7 says he was innocent and unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He was a lamb in his prime at a year old. A a lamb is sort of on the cusp of adulthood. Jesus was in his prime at 33 years old, as by Jewish consideration. When he was slaughtered, that lamb was to be eaten with bitter herbs, And Jesus did go through a bitter death, didn't he? Taking upon himself our very curse. And we ought to always remember the wormwood and the gall, the bitterness that Jesus went through on our behalf. He was a lamb roasted or burned up just as that lamb was burned on the fire and had to be completely consumed. Jesus was burned, as it were, under the fierce wrath of God for our sins and completely consumed on that cross. He died. He went under the wrath of God for us and for our sins. So friends, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whoever in the world believes in him and trusts in his blood will be passed over, free from the judgment of God. Really, the question for each one of us is, have we applied that blood? Like the Israelites would take a hyssop branch and put that blood on their doorpost. Have you put the blood on your doorpost? Have you trusted in Jesus' blood? Have you trusted in his sacrifice to deliver you, to save you? And solely in the blood and nothing else, your own works cannot save you. Your own observance of rituals cannot save you. You can't be saved by even partaking in communion or going to mass. Those are just symbols. Jesus Christ himself must save you by his own sacrifice. What can wash away my sin, the song says? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. O precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or as Horatius Bonner wrote beautifully, thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. If your spirit this morning is enslaved to sin and in dark unrest, you can look to the blood of the Lamb of God who frees you from slavery to sin, who forgives all your sins, washes you clean in his blood. Jesus has been sacrificed for us and he takes our sins away first in the sense of forgiveness. He cleans our slate. We never stand before God condemned any longer once we're in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says. We are completely justified, declared righteous by Jesus' perfect righteousness and his death for us on the cross, freely forgiven forever. But he also begins to cleanse us by that blood. In the sense of sanctification, we grow in holiness. We cleanse out the old life and the sins that once entangled us, and we begin to live more and more in holiness. This leads to a second point of application that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You could turn there. That is to celebrate our Passover lamb with an unleavened life. Just as the Jews were to get rid of every bit of leaven in their houses. God commanded them to do that at the Passover. We also are to cleanse out our lives, cleanse out sin and evil out of our own personal lives and our churches. The church of Corinth had to learn this lesson the hard way. They were entertaining, unrepentant sin in their midst, boasting about it. Paul had to rebuke them and remind them of the true Passover. He says in 1 Corinthians 5 6 to 8, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You want to know how we're to celebrate Passover, celebrate the feast of unleavened bread? This is how. We see that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and we go on and we live in light of that, cleansed of sin, and we cleanse ourselves of the old self, The old man, the old ways, evil and malice and all other unrighteousness. And we begin to live in sincerity and truth and put on all godliness. That's the unleavened life, whereas this sin is leaven that corrupts the whole body, the church. We need to be disciplined in our own lives, denying self and putting the old man to death. And we need to exercise discipline in the church, cleansing out unrepentant sinners from our membership roles. This is the entailment of Christ, our Passover lamb, having been sacrificed. You know, the weeks prior to Passover in Jerusalem, even to this day, it's said that garbage trucks are working overtime because all of the people are cleansing all this leaven and and everything out of their houses. They're doing some kind of spring cleaning. And so all of these garbage trucks are just taking all this garbage out of the city before everyone rests on the Passover. Well, that's what we're to be like. We're to be working overtime, getting the garbage out, getting the uncleanness out of our lives, getting the leaven out of our lives. We must, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has been sacrificed, to make us a holy and blameless people. But listen, don't go about that work of cleansing dryly or legalistically. We can work ourselves to the bone and tire ourselves out trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, wanting to be rid of sin, but not coming to the very fountain of cleansing. See, we need to live, as the hymn says, near the cross. That is the fountain that's been opened up. Jesus Christ himself, his person, his work on our behalf. If you try, say you have dirt and grease all over your hands and you try to get a dry cloth and wipe all of that off, is that going to be very effective? You need to wet it. You need to put your hands under water and soap, just like that. We need to get under Jesus Christ, under the cross at all times. We need to come to Jesus Christ knowing he's our advocate, that we do have cleansing through him and present effective intercession from the very throne of God. We're to come to him to find mercy and grace in our time of need. So we need to go about this cleansing, not legalistically, not just obeying a set of rules, but evangelically, in light of Christ, our Passover lamb, he's been sacrificed. Even as 1 Corinthians 6 says, You are not your own, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. We were bought with the precious blood of the lamb, and there is more than enough power in that blood to keep washing us forever. You need to say to your soul, I'm forgiven. My sins are remembered no more. Jesus Christ has died. Who is to condemn? The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So I will celebrate the festival. I will cleanse my heart of every sin. Beloved, it is an incredible thing that God has so built into our corporate life. A reminder of this cleansing we have By our Passover lamb. And that's my third point of application, and it'll lead us to a close. We're to celebrate the new meal and anticipate the heavenly meal. Jesus Christ showed explicitly that he was this Passover lamb because that very week of his passion, of his death, and his resurrection, just before the day of his death, he celebrated. The Passover with his disciples. Even as uh, Brent read for us in Luke 22, he earnestly desired to eat this Passover with his disciples. And it just so happened that in God's providence, God's sovereign plan, well, he was able to eat Passover on that day before his death. And he was able to show them that this Passover really pointed to him and the work that he would do on the cross that very next day. This new exodus that he would deliver his people from their sins through his death on the cross. By that time, a staple at the Passover meal was wine as well as unleavened bread. And so he took up these elements and showed that they symbolized him and his work on the cross. His body, Symbolized in the bread, broken for us. His blood, symbolized in that cup of wine, shed for us. For the forgiveness of our sins, the enacting of a new covenant, and welcoming us into fellowship with him that will be consummated at a marriage supper in the Father's kingdom. He notes this, that he would not again eat of this until the day he drank it with us in the Father's kingdom. He right now is waiting for a time when we will all be with him in the new heavens and new earth that he will create and we will eat the fruit of that land with him. The Apostle Paul taught churches to observe this meal when they were gathered together for worship. This is why each week we pass out the elements or rather you come and get them from the tables and we partake together, we remember what Jesus Christ had done, has done for us. We're not to observe that old Jewish Passover anymore. It has no spiritual value for Christians, but rather each Lord's Day we gather and we remember our Savior's work as we meet together and eat of this ordinance. He earnestly desired to eat this with his disciples. And so we're to earnestly desire to eat this together as we wait even for that greater meal that will be in the consummated glory. And this is not just Sundays, really, that we're to feed on Jesus Christ. But in John 6, I'll have you turn there, Jesus spoke of, the bread from heaven and water from the rock that the people received in the wilderness. But he says that these things really refer to him and we're to feast on him by faith. We're to believe in Jesus Christ and abide in him and so have life. He says in John six thirty five, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Friends, Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus gives us living water, as he would say in John 4, even. And we're to come to Jesus Christ, believe in him in order to have life and abide in him in order to be satisfied in this dry and weary land that we are wandering through as we anticipate the fruit of the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. This is the Christian life, first trusting the blood and being delivered from God's judgment, coming out of the world in a sense, but then still roaming through this world on our way to our heavenly home, remembering God's saving work through the blood of Christ, continually abiding in Him, trusting in Him, feeding on Him. And then when Christ returns in His glory, we will celebrate that great marriage supper with Him. Revelation 19, 6-9 speaks of this blessed feast, the consummation of God's blessing to us in the new earth. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Those of you who are married, I'm sure you felt some butterflies in your stomach before And on that day, you were married. There's this excitement and anticipation as you were about to enter into that full, unhindered fellowship with your spouse. But don't you sometimes feel that when you think of the marriage supper of the Lamb? Excitement, anticipation at the coming unhindered communion we will have with Jesus Christ. We will feast with him In that heavenly Canaan. Having no lack. It'll be like that land of Canaan. Flowing with springs of water. With all these fruits that we can enjoy. No lack. No pain. No mourning. No tears. No sin. No hindrance to our nearness to Christ. No injustice and immorality. No devil. No demons. No enemies. Only feasting and resting, enjoying the fruit of the salvation that Jesus Christ has wrought for us. As Sandra McCracken wrote, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. You may have discouragements in this life, The sting of trials, difficulties, and sorrows. But this is what keeps us going, friends. We feast on Jesus Christ even now, remembering the work he's done for us, enjoying the fruit of spiritual blessings he gives even now, but looking forward to the full enjoyment of that fruit in the heavenly Canaan. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the joy we have in salvation. Lord, and the joy we have to look forward to when we eat the fruit of that land. God, we thank you that you've brought us through your judgment. You've passed over us because of the blood of the lamb. Lord, we thank you that you have promised and it is sure that you will bring us also to glory. Lord, we pray that you would continue to sustain us. In this wilderness, Lord, with Christ himself, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.